MSW Media. Thanks to Hunter Douglas for supporting Daily Beans. Hunter Douglas makes innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems that can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day and bring greater convenience, style, and comfort to your home. Go to hunterdouglas.com slash dailybeans today to get your Style Gets Smarter Design Guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. And today's show is also brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, April 4th, 2022. Today, Scott Stedman turns to the U.S. courts for help against a libel suit brought by a Russian oligarch. The New York Times apparently doesn't read its own reporting. Jamie Raskin confirms the January 6th committee hearings should begin in early May. Ukraine forces have retaken all areas around Kyiv, reclaiming complete control of the region. The attorney general in D.C. has expanded his lawsuit by adding Oath Keepers and Proud Boys to the list of defendants. The White House diarist tells the January 6th committee that records keepers were iced out in the days leading up to January 6th. And Amazon workers in Staten Island vote to unionize in an historic labor win. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everyone. Uh, Today is Monday. I'm very happy to be with you back from a weekend of traveling. And Dana is going to be back tomorrow. I'm very excited about that. So today I'm going to go over the news. I will bring you the good news at the end of the show. And then in the middle there, I'm going to be talking with the author of the book that comes out tomorrow called Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. His name is Mark Fallman. You don't want to miss that discussion. It's going to be very good. We do have a lot of news to get to that happened over the weekend. So let's jump in and hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up, the attorney general of Washington, D.C., has expanded his lawsuit against members of the January 6, 2021 mob that played leading roles in the attack on the Capitol, including Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes. This is Carl Racine. Okay, he is the attorney general for Washington, D.C. He is not federal. He doesn't work for the Department of Justice. He is the attorney general, kind of like Tish James in New York. But D.C. is a very interesting jurisdiction because they don't really have a state. So they have an attorney general, and then they also have the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. That's who's bringing all of the indictments against the boots on the ground January 6th operators and who we just found out over the weekend has been investigating the leaders, the funders, the rally organizers, both executive branch and legislative branch people involved in the impeding or attempting to impede the electoral count, which is, you know, as we've discussed all of the elements of the crimes of defrauding the United States and obstructing an official proceeding, both 18 U.S. Code, Sections 371 for conspiracy to defraud the United States and 1512C2 for obstructing an official proceeding. That's the U.S. Attorney's Office. This is the Attorney General. His name is Carl Racine. He announced Friday that he has added six new high-profile figures to the district's lawsuit, which already features more than 30 defendants connected to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Over the last few months, quote, we have learned 
more about the horrors of January 6th, including more about how the leaders of the two groups behind the attack urged members to use violence to overturn the outcome of a lawful presidential election. This was Carl Racine saying and speaking in a statement. We are seeking justice for the district, our democracy and the brave law enforcement officers who risked their lives that day. In addition to Rhodes, Racine has added Oath Keepers Edward Vallejo. And if you remember, he was the one who was indicted for seditious conspiracy alongside Stuart Rhodes, Joseph Hackett, David Marshall and Brian Ulrich. He's also added Matthew Green, a member of the Proud Boys who recently pled guilty for his role in the riot and is cooperating with prosecutors. Racine's suit is one of the handful of major efforts by those affected by the Capitol riot to seek damages from its most prominent participants. Several Capitol Police officers have sued former President Trump, his top aides, and leaders of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys as well. About 10 members of Congress filed lawsuits against Trump and his inner circle, too. U.S. District Judge Court Amit Mehta recently issued a landmark ruling determining Trump could face civil liability for his actions on January 6th and that the typical immunity afforded to presidents for their actions while in office doesn't apply to his actions at the Stop the Steal rally he helped lead. The new additions to Racine's suit, which also target the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, reflect new evidence unearthed by federal prosecutors against members of both groups, including the charges against Rhodes and his fellow Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy. The suit is the first government-backed litigation against the far-right organizations. Racine is seeking financial damages from the groups and their members under the Ku Klux Klan Act, a federal statute meant to guard against conspiracies to violate civil rights. The lawsuit also charges the defendants with assault and intentional affliction of emotional distress. He says, quote, we're focused on using the law to the maximum extent possible to impose financial liability on those who planned and participated in the assault and believe doing so will deter their future illegal attacks. And just days before the Capitol riot, White House officials started providing fewer details about then President Donald Trump's calls and visits and the person in charge of compiling those activities for the official record, has said that to the House Select Committee investigating January 6, 2021. That's according to two sources with knowledge of the probe. The committee interviewed Trump's presidential diarist roughly two weeks ago. His name is Smithy, I think, Alan Smithy. That interview has not previously been reported, nor has the testimony describing a noticeable drop-off in information provided by Oval Office staff leading up to January 6. So this is new information. Other witnesses also have told the panel there was significantly less information being shared with those involved in the White House record-keeping during the same time period. That's according to three sources familiar with the probe. One source described how White House records keepers appeared to be iced out in the days leading up to January 6th. Quote, the last day that normal information was sent was the 4th. That was another source familiar with the investigation who went on to say, so starting the 5th, the diarist didn't receive the annotated calls and notes. This was a dramatic departure. That is all out of the ordinary. This sort of jives with CNN's reporting that, you know, we reviewed the call logs. There's no pages missing when when we refer to that seven hour and 37 minute gap. Well, yeah, if the calls weren't given to the diarist to be put on the list, then the diarist's list would be complete for what he got. Withholding those calls is the problem. Withholding the calls from the diarist. Now, that diarist should have seen that one call from the White House, the 395 prefix, 3950000, made to another, you know, Mike Lee's cell phone, should have seen that on the data for the call log for, you know, from when, it, when you get the information from the switchboard. Because I imagine the person who compiles the diary and the call log goes up to the switchboard, 
goes to the secretary, says, hey, everybody, give me all your shit. I'm going to compile the diary and the call log. And the, those data from the switchboard would have that call on it when sent to the diarist. So the diarist should have put that in the log, unless before the diarist got it, it was somehow wiped from those data at the switchboard. I have no idea, but this diarist has testified to the January 6th committee. The White House diarist normally receives many streams of information, as I said, including the phone logs from the switchboard, the president's movements, from Secret Service, notes from Oval Office operations, etc. A close source to the panel's investigation didn't seem to know yet who, if anyone, directed a change in record keeping or what the motivation behind that change was, raising questions about whether the lack of information was intentional or for staffing issues. <laughs> uh, quote, it's tough to know what the change was. Was it intentional? It's not fucking tough to know that. One source said, we just, we just, can't, we just can't know if it was intentional that between January 4th and January 7th, who stopped getting information could just be a coincidence. Quote, you can only keep track of something when you know what's going on. When people don't share things with you, whether that was intentional and who decided that, I think that's murky at this point. Well, murky maybe in the in the realm of proving it beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12 people. But murky in just duh? No. Anyway, the House committee declined to comment. Also in the news, an independent journalist known for cranking out stories about alleged ties between the former president and Russia is turning to a U.S. court to try to fight off a legal onslaught in England. The story comes from Josh Gerstein at Politico and is about our friend, California-based reporter Scott Stedman. He is facing a libel suit in the U.K. from Walter Soriano, an Israeli-British security advisor who was a subject of interest in the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation of alleged Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election in 2016. Soriano sued Stedman in 2020 over reports linking Soriano to wealthy Russian businessmen with close ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. On Thursday, Stedman's lawyer filed a petition in federal court in Brooklyn demanding testimony and records from former FBI agent Richard Frankel, who went to work in 2016 for Soriano's firm, USG Security Limited. Frankel also worked for a long time alongside Michael Flynn in the office of the DNI and after leaving government, a contributor gig with ABC News. The new court filing says information from Frankel could help Stedman defend himself and the media outlet he founded, Forensic News. Frankel likely has in-depth knowledge of USG's activities and connections, including many of the activities about which Forensic News reported in 2019 and 2020 relating to Russian election interference and the Russian oligarchy. Frankel, who now works as an attorney and a security consultant on Long Island, declined to comment Friday the court action. Stedman's petition called Soriano's suit an attack on American free speech and journalistic values and contends it's an example of libel tourism, L-I-B-E-L, libel tourism, a phenomenon in which wealthy litigants sue U.S. journalists abroad in order to dodge the high standards the United States imposes to prove libel claims involving public figures. Stedman's attorneys say information from Frankel could help Stedman prove that the claims in his news reports are actually true. Stedman's filing says Soriano first came to his outlet's attention through a Politico story indicating that Senate Intelligence Committee investigators were seeking to interview him. Forensic News picked up a Politico report and ran with it, ultimately discovering and reporting on a web of shadowy connections and secretive dealings with Russian oligarchs and others. That's from Stedman's petition. A Senate Intelligence Committee report released in 2019 mentioned Soriano's business dealings but made no allegations of election interference or wrongdoing. 
In an email to Politico, a London-based attorney for Soriano noted the British courts have rejected the notion that the case there amounts to libel tourism. The High Court and the Court of Appeals have ruled that Mr. Soriano's suit is not libel tourism. He is the first person to be given permission to bring a claim for libel against a foreign news organization since the Defamation Act of 2013 was brought in, which sets a very high bar. Soriano attorney Shlomo Rexchoffen wrote, Mr. Soriano brings the action to vindicate his reputation and prove the unfounded allegations made by forensic news are wholly untrue. In a ruling in December, a British appeals court upheld Soriano's right to proceed with his claim. That appeals court also restored a claim a lower court had struck from the suit that Stedman's reporting violated the European Union rule known as the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. The prospect of U.S.-based news organizations being forced to conform to European data privacy rules prompts concerns among First Amendment advocates, including myself. Hello, what the fuck? Even if Stedman is ultimately found liable in the U.K. litigation, it's unclear whether Soriano would be able to collect any judgment, though. A U.S. law passed in 2010 in an effort to combat libel tourism makes it very difficult to enforce defamation judgments in the U.S. unless they come from countries that offer parallel free speech protections. We'll keep you updated. And Ukraine said on Saturday its forces has seized back all areas around Kyiv, claiming complete control of the capital region for the first time since Russia launched the invasion. Russian troops regrouped for battles in eastern Ukraine. Towns surrounding Kyiv bore scars of five weeks of fighting. Dead citizens and civilians laid scattered over streets, and President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russian forces of leaving behind mines, which we've seen video of. Ukraine's troops have retaken more than 30 towns and villages around Kyiv since Russia pulled back from the area this week. That's according to Ukrainian officials. Quote, the whole Kyiv region is liberated from the invader. Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister Hannah Melyar wrote on Facebook, there was no Russian comment on the claim, which Reuters could not immediately verify. And some great news. Amazon workers in Staten Island, New York, voted to unionize on Friday, making it the first successful U.S. organizing effort in the retail giant's history and handing an unexpected win to a nascent group that fueled the union drive. Warehouse workers cast 2,654 votes, about 55% in favor of unionization, giving the fledgling Amazon labor union enough support to pull off a victory. According to the National Labor Relations Board, which is overseeing the process, 2,131 workers, or 45%, rejected the union bid. The 67 ballots that were challenged by either Amazon or the ALU were not enough to sway the outcome. Federal labor officials say the results of the count won't be verified until they process any objections due by April 8th that both parties may file. The victory was an uphill battle for the independent group made up of former and current workers who lacked official backing from an established union and were outgunned by the deep pockets of Amazon. Despite obstacles, organizers believed their grassroots approach was much more relatable to workers and could help them overcome where established unions have failed in the past. They were right. And finally today, I have just a small bone to pick with the New York Times. Let's go over their recent article that was published on Saturday called Garland Faces Growing Pressure as January 6th Investigation Widens. All right, so... It's the, here's the lead here. It says the inquiry is a test for President Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland, who both come into office promising to restore the Justice Department's independence. And here we go. It says immediately after Garland was sworn in uh, in March of last year, he summoned top Justice Department officials and direct the FBI director to his office. And he wanted a detailed briefing on the case that will in all likelihood come to define his legacy. January 6th. Even though hundreds of people 
had already been charged at that point. Garland asked to go over the indictments in detail, according to two people familiar with the meeting. What were the charges? What evidence did they have? How had they built such a sprawling investigation involving all 50 states so fast? Give me your your best practices. What was the plan going forward? He wanted to know. Uh, Cool. (laughs) I don't know why that's newsworthy. The attorney general's deliberative approach has come to frustrate Democratic allies of the White House and at times President Biden himself. This is as if to say coming into the office and saying, give me all the information. I want to know what's going on is somehow the deliberative approach that frustrates Democratic allies. And apparently the White House at times. President Biden himself, as recently as late last year, Mr. Biden confided in his inner circle he believed former President Trump was a threat to democracy and should be prosecuted. That's according to two people familiar with his comments. And while the president has never communicated his frustrations directly to Mr. Garland, which he's not supposed to, he has said previously he wanted Garland to act less like a ponderous judge and more like a prosecutor who's willing to take decisive action over the events of January 6th. Cool. But instead of using that information to dispel the long-held myth by some people on the right and the left who say that Biden isn't interested in prosecuting Trump, he just wants to move forward, he's an institutionalist, globalist, shitlib, elite, whatever the fuck they say, instead of saying, hey, look, this headline should be Biden says privately he wants Donald Trump to be prosecuted. That's cool. He's allowed to say that privately. He's not allowed to go tell the Department of Justice to do that. Speaking to reporters on Friday, Garland said that he and the career prosecutor working on the case felt only the pressure to do the right thing, which meant they will follow the facts and the law wherever they may lead. No gasp. Still, Democrats' increasingly urgent calls for justice and for the Justice Department to make more aggressive action highlight the tension between the frenetic demands of politics and the methodical pace of one of the biggest prosecutions in the department's history. God, I wonder who might be perpetuating the uh, the whole Garland needs to move faster narrative. Who could it be? New York Times. I'm, I've been fighting against that, as have many level-headed former federal prosecutors and Department of Justice people and pundits for quite a while. Quote, the Department of Justice must move swiftly. That's what Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia and member of the House Committee investigating the riot, said this past week. She and others on the panel want the department to charge Trump allies with contempt for refusing to comply with the committee's subpoenas. Yes. And for you to sit here and say Democrats' urgent call for the Justice Department to take more aggressive action highlights the tension between demands of politics and methodical pace, and then to use a quote from a committee member about the contempt charges against Meadows only and conflate that with the overall malaise that you're creating with the Department of Justice is irresponsible. It's fucking irresponsible. Quote, Attorney General Garland, Ms. Luria said during a committee hearing, do your job so that we can do ours. Yeah, and I agree. Not indicting Meadows for criminal contempt makes it harder to enforce congressional subpoenas, though there may be very legit reasons that they haven't indicted him yet. Merrick Garland has said very recently that it is ongoing, the Meadows thing, he ha- it, which means it's still being considered. It's still being investigated. But yes, at the same time, not indicting him makes it harder for Congress to issue their subpoenas. That's true. But it doesn't mean Garland is a piece of shit. And to infer that here is infuriating to me. 
New York Times says this article is based on interviews with more than a dozen people, including officials in the Biden administration and people with knowledge of the president's thinking, all of whom asked for their anonymity to discuss private conversations. Cool. So your story here is that Biden said privately to his advisors, I I want Merrick Garland to to prosecute Donald Trump, investigate and prosecute Donald Trump. That's the story here. In a statement, Andrew Bates, White House spokesman, said the president believed Garland had decisively restored the independence of the Justice Department. Biden is immensely proud of the attorney general service in the administration and has no role in investigative priorities or decisions, Mr. Bates said. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Bates. A Justice Department spokesman declined to comment. Yeah, that's what they do. The January 6th investigation is a test not just for Garland, but for Biden, the New York Times says. Both men came into office promising to restore the independence and reputation of the Justice Department that Trump had tried to weaponize for political gain. That's what they're fucking doing. How is this a test for Biden? How is what the Department of Justice does a test for Biden? Why are you putting that in the minds of voters ahead of midterms? Because New York Times probably wants Republicans to win the election. They'll have a lot more to report on. They'll have a lot more click grabby headlines put this on biden while saying they're supposed to be separate this bullshit for mr biden keeping that promise means inviting the ire of supporters who say they will hold the president to the remarks he made on the anniversary of the assault on the capitol when he vowed to make sure the past isn't buried you just told us he didn't want to do that complicating matters for biden complicating matters for biden is that his two children are entangled in federal investigations. And if you know, fuck you. One of his kids, Ashley Biden, is the victim of a crime by Project Veritas. She's not entangled in an investigation. And the other one is a bullshit investigation by a bar appointee for political purposes only and is stupid. And he's not even in the government. It's a a waste. Hmm. Well, anyway, this this story, let's see, federal opponents have widened. They do admit that the federal prosecutors have widened the investigation to include a broad range of figures associated with Trump's attempts to cling to power. Beep, bop, beep, which is their own reporting. The Justice Department has given no public indication about its timeline or whether prosecutors might be considering a case against Mr. Trump. Yeah, because they can't. And you know that, Maggie Haberman. You fucking know that they can't do that. And they talk about the House Committee's investigation. They say Mr. Garland has not changed his approach to criminal prosecutions in order to placate his critics, according to several Justice Department officials who have discussed the matter with him. He is regularly briefed on the January 6th investigation, but has remained reticent in public. It's because he's not the one conducting these investigations. And people seem to forget that. They think Garland himself is the one investigating the the higher-ups for January 6th and the one issuing indictments. No, this is the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., They bring the prosecutions and then they go and inform Garland that they're prosecuting. And if he was denying prosecutions, there would be resignations and protest like there was in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which is not part of the Department of Justice. And people seem to think it is anyway. Quiet and reserved, Garland is well known for the job. He was denied a seat on the Supreme Court. Garland peers regard him as a formidable legal mind and a political centrist after graduating from Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. He prosecuted domestic terrorism cases and supervised the Oklahoma City bombing investigation. Um, His critics say his subsequent years as an appellate court judge made him slow and overly deliberate. No, thanks for quoting his opponents who have nothing 
to show for that. No, no proof of that. But his defenders say he was always carefully considered legal issues, particularly as stakes are very high, a trait that most likely helped the Justice Department secure a conviction against McVeigh. Yes, good, good. During the presidential transition of 2020 after the election, Biden took his time mulling over candidates to be attorney general, according to senior members of the transition team. He promised the American people he'd reestablish the department as an independent arbiter with the government. Of course, he was considering Doug Jones. Did he want a, like a holder type? And he went with Garland, who had a reputation for being even handed and independent. And despite Mr. Biden's private frustrations with the attorney general, several people who speak regularly to the president say he's praised Garland as among the, one of the most thoughtful, moral and intelligent people he's dealt with in his career. And I take Biden's word for that. The two men did not know each other well when Biden was elected or when Biden selected him for the job. And Garland had a closer relationship with Ron Klain, though, Mr. Biden's chief of staff, than he did with the incoming president. Officials inside the White House and Justice Department acknowledge the two men have less contact than some previous presidents and attorneys general. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Mr. Biden, the former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, came to his job as president with a classical post-Watergate view of the department. That it was not there to be a political appendage. Yes, good. Then they say, still, there's unrelenting pressure from Democrats to hold Mr. Trump and his allies accountable for the violence that unfolded at the Capitol on January 6th. While there's no indication that federal prosecutors are close to charging the former president, Biden and those closest to him understand the legal calculations. OK, first of all, the New York Times, this is from the New York Times. They're saying there's no indication that they're close to charging the former president. This is the same publication and one of the same writers on the byline who put out the story that there were five separate occasions now where the Department of Justice has linked Donald Trump's tweet from December 19th, 2020, to the violence at the Capitol, to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and some of the three percenters. Five times they've done that. And this report comes a couple of days after they put out this huge report saying they are looking at the executive branch and legislative branch for, for anyone who might have impeded or attempted to impede the electoral count. And they're looking at the seven state conspiracy with the Pence pressure campaign. And they're looking at the false electors and they're looking at the rally organizers and not just the one six rally, but the two other stop the steal rallies leading up to January 6th and the funders. Oh, but gosh, Democrats, unrelenting pressure from Democrats, no indication federal prosecutors are close to charging the former president. Anyway, if you want to read this story, you're welcome to it. But I basically just read it to you and uh, disagree with it a lot. Anyway, I don't like I don't like what they're trying to say here. And maybe, you know, maybe that's personal. But it, there's just it just seems to be a narrative spun to upset people against a backdrop of facts that they themselves have fucking reported. So anyway, that is uh, that's that. That's the hot notes, everyone. And I know it took a little while to get through most of these today. This is a big A block, so I appreciate your patience. All right, I'll be right back with the author of the book Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, which comes out tomorrow. His name is Mark Fullman, and he'll be with us right after this break. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans. And this show brought to you by AG is also brought to you by AG, Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company specializing in daily nutrition. Maintaining a healthy diet can be very, very challenging because, you know, I have that very hectic schedule. Plus, I'm paleo, intermittently fast. I have huge gaps in my nutrition. So I don't have time to graze perpetually all day on vegetables and fruits and grains. And that's where Athletic Greens comes in because it's not just all the multivitamins, multi-minerals you need. It's also got a probiotic in AG1 
It's got a green superfood blend and 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food ingredients. It's amazing. Taking AG1 in the morning helps keep me productive all day long. It's a super convenient, easy habit to pick up and it tastes delicious. AG1 has bioavailable ingredients that it's a great alternative to the multiple pills and supplements that I used to have to have a cabinet full of, but now I get in one scoop of AG1. Again, it complements all lifestyles, including keto, paleo, vegan, gluten-free, and dairy-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no chemicals, no artificial ingredients, no GMOs, and it tastes amazing. And the best thing about Athletic Greens, they keep their research up to date. Most supplements, they hit the market and don't ever change, but you know, there's the thing called science. And that's what I love about Athletic Greens. Based on the latest research, AG1 has undergone 53 improvements over the last decade. For complete nutritional support, I highly recommend AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am joined by the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. It's coming out Tuesday, this Tuesday, April 5th. I'm really excited about this. We've had him on the show previously to discuss this book. He's also a journalist, a a national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Please welcome Mark Fullman. Hi, Mark. Hi. Good to talk with you again. Yes, it's great to see you. And we're just we're here on like the precipice of this book being released. And you sent me a copy. I think you actually sent me two copies. So I got to give one away to somebody who I thought needed to read it. We can talk about that later. (laughs) But one of the things that really stood out to me with this book, and I read a lot of books, you know, I read a lot of books, is the presentation of the information just made so much sense from start to finish. And I really need to, I want to encourage everybody to to grab this book because the content is crucial, especially with our upcoming elections this November. And also just the way it, it's presented, it just makes so much sense. So can you talk a little bit about when you were putting the book together, what those sort of the underpinnings throughout all of the different narratives and how that impacts the way that the the information is is presented. And then I want to talk about the content after that. Sure. Well, thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate that. I, I put a lot of work into uh, creating a book that I really wanted to be narrative, rooted in, in deep narrative. So that's what Trigger Points sets out to do with this subject matter, which is really departing from a fundamental question. What What is it that we can do to deal with this problem of mass shootings? How can we get beyond this, you know, political debate that we've had for years and years that seems to go nowhere? Um, we have this problem recurring over and over again. And when I started learning about this prevention method of threat assessment, I saw a great story. There are really interesting people working in this field in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, and other settings as well. And as I started to get to know them more and, and know their experiences, there, there was just a whole lot of great storytelling to do. And I could see how I would be able to weave the work of threat assessment professionals in with looking at, at these deep dives of, of cases of, of mass shootings and, and threat cases and kind of analyzing what it is that's behind them, you know, to solve any difficult problem. And this is among the most difficult we have, in my view, um, you have to understand it well. And I feel like our political debates about guns and gun violence don't really seek to understand the problem very well in a lot of cases, right? We just argue with each other, left, right, or center about it. 
And so, you know, the more I felt that the more that I could do to learn what was behind these attacks, and that's really what this field does. It's looking at the process that leads up to a mass shooting, more so than even asking the question of motive. Why does someone commit a mass shooting? That's often very hard to answer. But what this research has shown is that you can look at the behaviors and the circumstances that lead up to an attack. You can see patterns in that. You can see warning signs. And with that information, we're much better positioned to get in the way of it, to stop it from happening. And so that to me was a really fascinating and powerful story. And, and that's what I've tried to really put together with this book. Yeah. And I think that you you do such an amazing job of like laying the information out, like I said, just to so we can understand it from start to finish. And oddly, that is exactly what needs to be done with gun violence as well, because, you know, it needs to be studied as a public health issue. It needs to we have to understand it in, or, in order to address it. We have to acknowledge it and, and understand it, have a deeper understanding of it. And we're so far behind the eight ball on that already because for so long we were prohibited That's right. from studying gun violence. And, and, you, and you talk a little bit about that in your book. Yeah, I, I agree completely that, it, you know, because of the politics, again, getting in the way of this for a long time, research was underfunded and underpursued because of the kind of political chill on this topic um, and, and due in large part to the power of the gun lobby, namely the NRA, historically. So, you know, it's interesting when I got to know people in this field of work, I, I found that many people in, in working in threat assessment don't really talk about gun policy or gun laws. It's more like a sort of a very like hardcore realist approach to the issue. I mean, they just sort of are dealing with the fact that we have so many guns in this country and these attacks keep happening over and over again. And they're concerned, you know, there's actually quite a range of views I found among people in this field, liberal to conservative. But it's almost beside the point. I mean, the problem is inherently about guns, but it's also much more sophisticated. It's really a problem of human behavior. That's that's the way I focus on it with the book. It's, you know, what more can we understand about the behaviors behind this? And if we can address that. And, you know, as you say, this coming year, we were talking about this a little bit before the start that, you know, we're again in this extremely volatile period of politics and conflict within our society. And there are more guns than ever. People are buying guns at record numbers. And it's a very combustible situation. And violent political extremism is on the rise. And this field has actually adapted to that to some degree in, in my recent research to see that that is seen as a rising threat of, of planned violence. Um, and that's what these attacks are. They're planned attacks. Yeah. And but also, I think what's what's kind of amazing is that there's proof that this this method works. And also, you know, and you talk you discuss this in your book, there are many mass shootings that have been prevented. And I think that the the detail in which you chronicle those events sort of helps lay the groundwork for what we can expect when we do understand more about what causes gun violence. Yeah, I, I would add too that, you know, I, I've come to see this as a very kind of optimistic or hopeful way to look at the problem because it's constructive. And, and there, there is quite a bit of evidence of success with this approach to intervening and preventing attacks from occurring. And it's a little tricky because you're, you're proving a negative, right? How do you know that uh, you've stopped violence if it doesn't occur? But I can tell you from looking at a lot of cases and the many cases that I write about in the book, there's very compelling evidence in many of these cases that these were people who were in a very bad way, who were in crisis, who were angry, going off the rails. Uh, they were 
planning and taking steps toward committing an act of violence of this kind. And this process got in the way and was able to redirect those people constructively to a better place. So when you see it in its sort of ideal form, and, and I'm talking about a range of cases, um, anywhere from in a school setting, I write about a number of school cases in the book, uh, threat assessment programs set up in K through 12 school districts, which is really something that came out of the Columbine massacre t- two decades ago, to also workplace settings where you have like workplace conflict and grievances. So there's quite a range of behavior and situations where this can be applied and where I've looked at cases where it's been applied and with uh, success that's very persuasive when you look at the details of, of the individual that was being um, looked at and, and managed and in a lot of cases helped constructively to, to get help. I mean, that's really what we're talking about in many of these cases. Um, there's kind of a big myth of mass shootings that I talk about in the book that I think the public generally tends to think of mass shooters as completely insane. It seems like a completely insane thing to do. And it is in a lay sense to go commit a mass shooting. But most of the people who commit these attacks are not clinically diagnosably mentally ill in that way. They're not, um, you know, paranoid schizophrenics who are hearing voices. They're not being told by aliens to go shoot up a movie theater or a school. These are people who are deeply angry and depressed and in a lot of cases suicidal, but they have rational thought processes that, that allow them to plan an attack and carry it out. And so that's a whole different ballgame when you're talking about how do you deal with a person like that? Yeah. And so now that we've got sort of a way to kind of reach across the aisle a little bit more than say, you know, like banning guns, you know, we're like, hey, let's just figure out what to study the problem. Maybe we can prevent that would require resources as well. And I feel like where that might be a not so not as locked door to get into into right wing ears I feel like we would still end up hitting a political wall when it comes to the resources necessary to be able to understand and follow that kind of a case or or prevent these sorts of cases. I feel like without funding and resources, it's it's just going to be a slips through the cracks kind of thing, which we still see, which we see now, even if, you know, without the further understanding. So how do we get to a point where we're able to do that more efficiently or because I, I don't know if resources are going to be available, but I know you addressed this in the book and I was wondering if you could tell everybody what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, well, I think you, you've touched on two great points with this. One being that it, it is very appealing in the way that it crosses partisan politics and it's broad based. There's there's kind of broad nonpartisan appeal to this approach uh, in some ways. And it also, I think by no coincidence, uses tools that have bipartisan support, including what we know now as red, quote, red flag laws, uh, this more recent tool of trying to remove guns from people who are showing signs of being dangerous to themselves or others. Those laws have, have been uh, spreading throughout states uh, with bipartisan support. So that kind of speaks to a process of intervention that gets us past that stalemate, I think. Um, so, but to the question of scaling it, it's a really good question. And I, I've, I've tested that quite a bit with leaders in the field as I was working on trigger points. You know, how are you going to do this? How are you going to get everyone around the country to do this? First, they have to understand it. Then they have to devote time and resources to it, invest in it. And I think one of the more compelling answers that I've gotten is that a lot of the sort of infrastructure you need to do this is really already there. It's already built in. So if you look at a school system, for example, 
a threat assessment team in a school system is going to use a school psychologist, uh, counselors, administrators, school resource officers, uh, so that you can see the mental health, education, law enforcement components are all right there. It's really a matter of training, learning what this this method is to to approach cases of concern, threatening behavior that might be seen or discussed around a school campus, and then getting together and evaluating that case and then making a plan for managing it. That's really what the process is all about. So you have the personnel in place already. It's a matter of getting the training. There, there are some specialists who do this work within the school systems where I've studied it, but it's not something that has to be built from scratch. So I think that's a very interesting aspect of it. It's really, it's community-based violence prevention at the end of the day. That's what this model is. And so you're talking about leaders in a community, professionals in a community, learning how to do this process, working together collaboratively to carry it out. Finally, do you see this process as sort of an in lieu of trying to get common sense gun laws passed or get you know getting past the NRA? Or is it sort of a smaller step that actually has really big consequences. But you know what I mean by when I say a smaller step in the meantime, until we can get to a place like that, because, you know, what I'm hearing in my head, possibly from and, and talking to some other folks about this is, no, we need to get rid of, you know, put the assault weapons ban back on. We have to get insurance for guns. We have to tax ammunition. We have to have common sense gun laws, universal background checks, blah, blah, blah. Et cetera, et cetera. The things that most people who advocate for common sense gun laws and common sense gun reform want. Yeah. So what when you get pushback from folks who are who who say that this doesn't go far enough, what is sort of your response to that? Yeah, well, I don't see it as either or at all. I, I see this as an additive solution and a potentially very powerful one. I I believe personally, like the majority of Americans as defined by many years of public opinion polling, that we need more effective gun laws in this country. Uh, The the debate and and struggle over gun regulation is very important. It's essential to this this equation and and other aspects of gun violence. I've written and reported about it a lot myself in in my role as a journalist for Mother Jones. But as I say at the at the opening of trigger points, it's not a book about gun control or guns. It's it's beyond that. It's 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 grappling with a problem that is more complex than its tool of destruction, as I say. So I think, you know, it's really about we're we're tackling a very difficult and complicated problem. And therefore, the the answer is going to be complex too. The solution is going to be complex. And I think this is an additional component that is very interesting and potentially very effective in helping us to reduce this problem. Yeah. And I think another takeaway is, is once you have, once you do the study, once you have these studies, you have the the data, you have the information, which we, we still don't have a, a, a comprehensive body of knowledge on this particular topic, because as you said, as I said, we haven't been able to study this for a long time. Once you do have that, then again, you'll be able to put in place or know better where the most, I guess, you know, bang for the buck goes when you're when you're trying to to mitigate these particular problems. And and naturally from the the perspective of, of trigger points, which again, everybody comes out Tuesday, you have to get it. It goes to the heart of that. It goes to the meat of the matter, right? It, the whole process leading up, it's the the complexity of it and not these very single band-aid what I would consider band-aid solutions 
that may or may not even answer the question because we haven't really fully asked it. Right. And also, I think we have to meet the problem where it is, the reality of it. The fact is, we have so many guns and we have so many loose, we have so much loose regulation in so many places in the country. So unless and until that changes broadly, the the reality that we face with this is these will keep happening. So the question again, for me, going back to the beginning of all this was what more can we do? Hmm. And and part of that, too, is just it is understanding it better, like we talked about through research, which we have a lot more of it now. It's happening. And this field in particular has developed a lot of research over the years and I think has evolved in some really interesting ways that I talk about late in the book that relate to digital media and some of and political extremism, some of these factors, factors that are now more a part of the, the, the threat landscape, knowing those things and also knowing a lot more about the mental health component. You know, that's another big myth with this problem that we talked about earlier, that the idea that all these people are insane, that mental illness is the primary cause of mass shooting. It's just not true. And yet, you know, people who are going down this path have problems that nobody would regard them as mentally healthy. Oh, no, no. But there are many of us in the United States that have PTSD, depression, anxiety that do not go out and commit mass murder. right? Right. So where's that crossover? And like you said, it's not that they snap, right? This is a, a premeditated thing that takes a lot. We saw this with the, with the parents of the shooter where the parents were, were indicted, legally held, or, yeah. you know, Michigan, attempting to be Michigan. held yeah. in Michigan, attempt to be held legally liable. All of the signs that, that crept in and kept coming. It wasn't just, hey, he was at Boy Scouts and then one day, bang, you know, it's, it's not, that's not how it goes. And, and so I think, and I felt very seen and understood when when you were discussing that and you mentioned it at multiple points that, hey, it's not a mental health problem. And and that's because you know, I have PTSD, depression, anxiety, and this is not how I cope. Uh, you know, do. so it's just no, that's right. not a predictive condition for, for this act. And, and there's a long body of, of research showing that uh, mental illness is not predictive of violence. It has no value for predicting violence. And the fact that most people who suffer from mental health problems are not violent, the vast majority. So that tells us nothing more than like, oh, we think this is all white men who do this. Well, there are a lot of white men who, who commit mass shootings, but not all of them do that. And furthermore, half the country, you know, if you're talking about men, half the country are men. So that doesn't tell you anything about who's going to commit a mass shooting. So what are you looking at? You're looking at the specific patterns of behavior and warning signs and circumstances that lead up to these. And, you know, we, we can really get past the kind of simplistic political dogfight we have over this issue while still advocating for the things that we care about, whether we're conservative or liberal in politics, you, you care passionately about gun control. This is not a, a mutually exclusive equation. It's, the, it's very much the opposite of that, in my view. Yeah, important issues are often complex. I, I have yet to to meet a complex, important issue that was very, you know, had a had a one <laughs> a one step fix. So <laughs> uh, I appreciate you coming on today, and I really hope everybody grabs a copy. It's available now wherever books are sold. So go, you know, go and go and make it happen. And I think that you'll not only appreciate the content, the ideas, but the way it's presented. I can't get over the organization of this book. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, everyone follow Mark Fullman on social media. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you again. It's good to see you. And we'll have you back. I want to know 
how it goes because I'm sure that there will be multiple editions of this book coming out as new information comes out. Thank you. And everyone, the book comes out tomorrow. That's Tuesday, April 5th, wherever you get your books. It's called Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America by Mark Fallman. I really appreciate your time today. And I really appreciate this book and the information in it and how it's presented. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And today's show is brought to you by Hunter Douglas. They present beautiful, expertly crafted window treatments, beautiful fabrics, and systems that automatically adjust to their ideal positions throughout the day, no matter what time it is. It's amazing. PowerView technology by Hunter Douglas automatically adjusts your shades for maximum light control Uh, But not just the light in your house, it also helps with the privacy and insulation. And it does that regardless of what time it is. Hunter Douglas shades diffuse harsh sunlight so your room has a beautiful, even glow. It's so comfortable, it's pleasant, it's calming. They also ensure your privacy so you can see out but people can't see in. And they help you save money by keeping your room warm in the winter and cooler in the summer, which is awesome. It's it's sustainable. It takes takes a little bit of the you know, that the, the weight off of our power grid so that, you know, it doesn't struggle so much to keep up. And this means you have a home that's more functional and stylish and comfortable. I like how PowerView automatically adjusts the shades to ensure that no matter what time it is, I always have the right balance of light, privacy and insulation. So I recommend checking out Hunter Douglas. Just go to hunterdouglas.com slash daily beans today. You can change the entire mood of your whole home with this simple upgrade to Hunter Douglas. Again, that's hunterdouglas.com slash dailybeans to get your free style get smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for addressing your windows. That's hunterdouglas.com slash dailybeans for your free design guide. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. And this is the last time I'm going to have to read the good news by myself for a while because Dana's going to be back tomorrow. But I'm so glad that you're with me and I'm so glad you keep sending in your good news. And if you have good news, corrections, confessions, Halloween photos, Thanksgiving turkey pictures, you want to send in your Easter bunny photos, whoopee stories, stuffed animal stories. I think our oldest one now is like 100 years old or something like that, which is so cool. Uh, You can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And again, if you're having trouble with Apple Podcasts not updating the Beans feed, try unfollowing and then following again. Try unsubscribing and resubscribing. That works for everyone who's tried it. First one up from Chris, pronouns he and him. Hey, AG, you're right. The Browns have knelt on the two-yard line (laughs) and even the one-yard line. In the 2020, V Texans Nick Chubb ran out the one-yard line after a 59-yard run instead of scoring a touchdown and then knelt out the clock for a win. Dems don't really have the luxury of being in the lead for midterms, though. Pet Dax. His name is Hank. We got him from a shelter and he's a loud, howling, lazy hound dog. Oh, my God. Look at this boy. It's like he's got a pointer body and like a and like a shepherd head and feet. Oh, my God. That's so pretty. What a pretty dog. Oh, he's such got such cool coloring. Honestly, that is so cool. All right. Thanks for that submission. Next up from Ben. Pronouns he and him. Hello, the Guminati. Thanks for keeping those of us on the east side of the Atlantic sane. My good news is that I'm a student again. I've just found out I'm going to be funded for a part-time PhD program looking at traumatic brain injury. Oh, TBI. Ben, excellent. This is excellent news. For pet tax, may I offer another picture of our growing pup, Charlie, Shih Tzu, and Yorkie? Here he is practicing his ear semaphore. (laughs) Nice. I've also got a shit kid say. My youngest daughter had to do a worry jar type exercise recently where they wrote things down that worried them and how they're going to brave it out or how to be brave about them. 
My wife and I were horrified, wondering who this Arthur Pods was and why our daughter was scared of him. Was she being bullied? Turns out it was Arthopods. No, uh, Arthropods, and she's scared of spiders. That's amazing. Oh my God, here's the puppy. Thank you for this. And the jar of courage. <laughs> Arthropods. Who is Arthropods? That's amazing. Thank you for sending that in. I love that shit kids say. Next up from Anonymous Pronoun She and Her. I'm so happy to have the Daily Beans as part of my morning routine. Here's my pet pod tax. My girl Sloane Louise. On March 31st, we celebrated her 13th birthday, a day I didn't think would happen for my old lady. You're welcome to play What the Mutt, but I've never done testing. She's a rescue, so I officially don't know. She's huge. She looks like part Portuguese water dog and part Great Pyrenees. That's what I would say she is. But she's beautiful. Look at the face. <gasps> what a honey. Could also be Newfoundland. But I, I tend to find that, that the, the giant black dogs that aren't purebred Newfies are Pyrenees mixed with some other uh, black breed. Like a, port, like a Portuguese water dog or a Burmese. But I don't see the brown points. So, But, you know, hey, could be a Newfie. She's beautiful, whatever she is. And, oh, one of her vets and I strongly suspect she's a great Pyrenees mix. There you go. Yeah, I agree. I concur. Next up from Carolyn, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beanie Babies. You are all the best, and I've been listening since the kitchen table days. You keep me sane. Because of your thorough and amazing analysis, I'm finding my voice, and I've been helping organize a grassroots group that works on Get Out the Vote and canvassing for various Democratic campaigns. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Carolyn, for that work. The first pick is some of the 50-plus quilts I just delivered from my quilt guild to comfort Ukrainian refugee children. Oh, The second pick is a quilt I made and hung in our quilt show that just happened. Our last show was canceled because of COVID and our guild had not met in person over two years. It was a wonderful weekend of color, creativity, and friends. Over 5,000 people attended the show and we all wore our masks. The pet tax picks uh, is our pandemic dog that my daughter adopted from Berkeley Humane Society, Sadie. She lives with us at her apartment as her apartment has a no pets policy. Good news is they will both have a new home to move into as my daughter just bought her first house. She and her papa are rehabbing it. Want to try guessing what the, what she is? Let's see here. First of all, the quilts are beautiful. Oh, that quilt is so, I love that one standout star. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, look at her. Okay. <laughs> Maybe Samiad and Poodle? I don't know. Let's see. 50% Poodle. Woohoo! 12 and a half Cocker, 12.5 Pekingese, and 25 Super Mutt. And she's albino to boot. Now oh, she's beautiful. Oh, I love her little pink nose. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that news. Billy, next up from Billy, pronoun she and her. And this is our final submission today. Good morning, Beans Queens. My wife and I started listening to your podcast after hearing your interview on the Midas Touch back in early February. Oh, thanks, Midas Mighty. Go, Billy. Since then, we've tried not to miss a day and have also started supporting your awesome work on Patreon. It was enlightening to hear you talk about the origin of the title Daily Beans in a recent episode because up until then, we just assumed it referred to coffee beans. This was in part because of the mug on your logo, but also because your incredibly rapid-fire delivery of the news led us to suspect you were highly caffeinated. <laughs> You're a highly caffeinated superwoman who could race through a paragraph of text with nary a stumble. Well, thanks, Billy. At times, it seemed like you could be doing those disclaimers at the end of commercials for certain homeopathic remedies that are not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. So, when that's what we thought. 
Then I discovered, much to my chagrin, the playback speed for our podcast was set to 1.5 times. <laughs> Resetting it to normal speed has changed our listening experience considerably. We still think you're a superwoman, but now you sound relaxed and cool. Billy, you should try us on half speed. I sound drunk. Michael Cohen sounds much less frantic, by the way. And the Masalas brothers are also less frenetic when still being very organized and fun to listen to. Keep up the great work. Now we're able to keep up with you. <laughs> Thanks, Billy. That's awesome. Everybody check your podcast speed. If you've got me on one and a half times speed, that might be a little bit easier to slow it down. Um, anyway, thank you so much for sending in your good news stories and your corrections, your confessions, your shit kids say, your what the mutts. I appreciate this so much. If you have anything you want to send us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com. Click on the contact. And Dana's going to be back tomorrow. I'm so excited. I miss my Dana so very much. So I will get to see my very good friend and you. she'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Until then, everyone, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been A.G., and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>